Hey everyone, welcome to The Dark Cast. I'm your host, Jonathan Miley. The Dark Cast is a bi-weekly discussion celebrating and critiquing video games. The show is divided into multiple conversations between myself and the various writers here on DarkStation.com. I hope you find this episode as a nice distraction from our crazy world, and I hope this episode finds you safe and well. We're continuing our discussion of some of our favorite games from the past 10 years, so be warned, there are spoilers ahead for the games we discuss. In Section 1, I talk with Garland Pan about Undertale, and in Section 2, I talk with Brandon Boyd about The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt. Be warned, we talk about The Witcher a lot. A lot. Anyway, you can find exact timestamps for each section in the show, as well as more information about the games we discuss below in the description on YouTube or in the show notes for this episode on DarkStation.com. There you can also find the DarkCast Interviews podcast, as well as other video game reviews, previews, and features. Be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at DarkStation underscore com, find us on Facebook, check us out on YouTube, and email us at podcast at DarkStation.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Now on with the show. Everybody and welcome back to the Darkcast. I'm Jonathan Miley. We are continuing our discussion of some of our favorite games from the past decade. And joining me for this segment is Garland Pand. How are you doing, Garland? I'm doing all right. How about you, Jonathan? I'm doing pretty good. I'm just always excited to sit down and talk about more of everybody's favorite video games. So um, this. <laughs> I've mentioned this multiple times before, but the, the show seems to kind of oscillate between either games that I also enjoy or games that I don't know a whole lot about. Um, and uh, very so far, very rarely have we had a game where both me and the other person I played, uh, I didn't like it, and they they did. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I, I get to learn all about Undertale today. Uh, so if, if I don't say it at the top of the show, uh, spoiler alert, we're, I mean, the game's been out for five years. We're talking about the game at length, so spoils ahead. Um, but yeah, I, I, so, I mean, I know this is a 2D game. We were just before we started recording, we were talking about that it was made with Game Maker, uh, which there's actually quite a few impressive games out there that have been made with Game Maker. And I was, I was kind of surprised by that. Um, but uh, I, don't, I don't know. I, I know I've heard a lot of people talk about this game, and I feel like there are a number of different reasons why people like to talk about it. But I guess the the one that kind of stands out to me maybe is kind of the 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 lack of violence in the game. You know, it's kind of like an, a a top down RPG, but your battle mechanics aren't attacking people, um, or you can you can attack people. Um, but, uh, I guess the, I don't know, the, the game is trying to emphasize, uh, not killing everybody, but actually, 
uh, more positive emotions like love and, and friendship and, and stuff like that. Um, so I, I don't know where you want to start with this game. So I guess t- t- take it away. All right. So, I mean, in terms of the nonviolent approach, it's more like an option. I mean, the first time you play the game, like assuming you haven't heard anything about the game, I mean, I'm pretty sure you would like kill some enemies and you would end up with like a middling ending. But let's start with the, um, just the gist of the story. You basically start off with a brief history lesson about how like monsters and humans uh, used to live together and um, eventually war broke out and the humans won and they sealed the monsters underground Hmm. and there's like a barrier that prevents them from leaving which requires seven human souls Uh, you play as a kid who's like exploring the mountains and he f- or they they fall into like a hole and then your journey begins like you're going to start running into like uh a bunch of goofy characters like monsters and you have the option to either fight them head on or like interact with them in a style reminiscent of something like Shin, Shin Megami Tensei uh like how you can converse with demons but in this particular instance it um and it relies more on like that particular type of monster rather than like a a more random approach okay yep so are are you always fighting monsters or i like so how how does how do the conversations and how do how does interacting with monsters kind of work in the game when you interact with uh monsters it's it's pretty simple. Like you'll press on the interaction button and then you'll get like options pertaining to that particular monster. Uh like for like one specific type of monster, there might be a heckle or a a joke or a, a laugh feature. Mm-hmm. And you have to do like specific things in like an order to get them to uh Stop trying to kill you, basically. Okay. And once you like sufficiently uh, appease them, you can uh, you can spare them. And uh, it's really interesting how like the battle phase works too, because it is turn based, but there are elements of real time like action in these segments because uh, the developer incorporated. Uh, bullet hell mechanics as in like or like top down shooter kind of mechanics in which bullets come towards you and you dodge them and sometimes you might run into multiple monsters at the same time and their uh, bullets will interact with each other to make like unique patterns basically it's it's like if one enemy has like sickles sickle shaped bullets and another has like a ring of fire for example You'd have to dodge both of them at the same time, and like, if you appeased one monster, you'd be able to uh, ease the load off, and mm. like the circle of fire would be gone. You know, it'd be easier and uh, progressing on in that battle. Okay. Yeah, and ter- in terms of the uh, actual combat mechanics, though, they are like very shallow in terms of the attacks that you can do. 
they it's just like uh you hit attack and uh it's a little bit like a rhythm game where you like hit the uh cursor or you wait until the cursor hits uh, reaches the center and then you'll deal more damage if you hit okay. at the right time. Gotcha. Yeah. Is that is that going along with the music or is that just a like you need to press the button at the right time to deal the most damage sort of system? No, it's the latter. It's just it's okay. just a very basic uh yeah. command. Yeah. Right. It's not even like a Paper Mario level or whatever. <laughs> okay. So I I guess what what makes this game one of your favorites from the past 10 years? Okay, like the um, the most obvious like clear thing would have to be how the comedy is delivered. It's there are like many things you can interact with in the environment and like read like descriptions and it's always like layered with jokes. The character, the main cast is very uh memorable like and they're very wacky and stuff but the deeper you get into like getting to know them you can see like the little nuances that uh that really stick in your mind like one character is like one character likes to joke around a lot but he also like he's very lazy and the okay. uh, the deeper you go into it, in like one of the routes, you find out the reason why he's so, so lazy. I mean, he's he's aware of uh, like how we can, how the player can uh, reload saves, start a new game, and whatnot. And like his his life is just like a plaything. I mean, it's just a toy, basically. I mean, people start new games over just to kill everyone or to um be nice f and see like the outcomes of the game and uh it's kind of like depressing and it kind of explains why he's not willing to uh put in the effort anymore he's just kind of given up in a way hmm. okay yeah i don't know it's it's kind i feel like undertale is kind of a difficult game to really explain in like the straightforward way that you typically would talk about a video game just because there's sure. like yeah i mean like there are there are meta narrative like elements into uh, built into the game like the character that can like acknowledge that the player can reload saves um near i mean i think near the end of like one of the good routes you find out that one of the characters can reload saves on their own as well like to cheat the player during like a boss fight <laughs> <laughs> that's that's pretty good uh is that annoying though i don't know i feel, I feel like that could be on the one hand like uh really sly and pretty funny uh but then I don't know, depending on the difficulty of it, if that, that could actually just be really frustrating. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's this particular fight that I'm thinking of is like, it, it's it's kind of cheap just because like, he reloads the save and you're like, what? I took damage. But like, mm, when I played it uh, yesterday, I, I replayed the uh, 
the boss fight, and um, it was pretty like fair overall. There are a lot of uh, checkpoints mm-hmm. in that particular fight, and um, for me, I didn't actually die at all. Like mm-hmm. after the first time, like the first time when I played it, it overwhelmed me. I was like, "What? What's happening again? I'm not. I won't, I'm not ready for this." Yeah, and then somehow, like the second run, I, I, everything just clicked. But I remember the first time I played it, I was like, "Oh my god, there's so many bullet hell things happening." <laughs> it it's uh, meant to convey like the chaotic power that the character has, though. So mm. okay, yeah. Um, another great big appeal to the game is like you mentioned, like the more positive aspects rather than like focusing on violence and killing and stuff. I feel like it's a very charming game that uh, really uh, resonates emotionally compared to most games. It's a it's a game with a lot of heart. Mm. Okay. Is is that um, I don't know. You, I I use that in a lot of different ways. Uh, kind of describing the ineffable quality of some games, generally as some sort of like distinction between. You know, maybe something that is AAA and technically really well made, um, but just kind of feels sterile and bland. Uh, whereas, you know, you can have indie games or I guess like, you know, mid tier kind of like double A games that don't have the same spit and shine, but I don't know, they just feel like they were made with love. So is are you talking about that in the same way that my mind is is thinking of that, or when when you say made with heart, what what do you mean? I'm referring to the story and how all the little details fall into place in terms of how they support the story, okay, as well as the character dialogue and how like willing to like dig deep into like the characters' mindsets, uh, their the developer is willing to go to like to the point where I don't know they're more fleshed out in like a more endearing way than most characters that you would encounter or most casts that you would encounter in video games. Okay. Nice. Um. Now, so. You mentioned before we started recording that there are a number of of different endings that you can actually get with the game. Um, how many times have you have you played it? How many endings have you seen, and how kind of diverse can those endings get? Um, there are there's a spectrum of like how much you're willing to kill and how much you're willing to save, basically. Hmm. Okay. So in terms of like what I would consider the best ending, you just don't kill anyone. You find your way to the point where you're able to not kill a single monster, regardless of how much they're willing to kill you. And you just try as many things as you can, as well as uh, getting to know all of the main cast as you possibly can. Uh, and even then the game locks you from actually getting the best ending until you beat it the first time through hmm. uh, in that specific route. So, like, the at the end, like, one of the characters will tell you, hey, you messed up here. You should uh, go back and uh, get to know this character a little more because, like, that character is very unwilling to uh, 
unwilling to expose like what they've done and who they are and stuff because of the experiments that they've worked on and how like embarrassed or ashamed they are of uh what they've done basically okay yeah and there are um dating sequences that would not they're not like the typical like they're not like dating sequences in the same way that you you would generally expect. It's not like honey pop or anything. Okay. <laughs> They're more like uh, ways to. Well, I mean, it's weird. Like some of them you can categorize as dating. Some of them are just hanging out. But like even then, it's more of a way to get to know the characters, and um, they don't actually end up with like a any like real romantic progression it's more just like friendship uh understanding and a lot of jokes built in or baked into the the dialogue yeah when you when you first said dating my mind went to like romance in games like you know bioware games or uh, you know some obsidian games or, or or something like that so uh that my, my mind went in a very different direction <laughs> uh, <laughs> um and then that made me think of uh, Saints Row 4, where you can just go and romance every single character uh, with the press of a button. And oh my gosh, that's, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> oh man, those are weird games. Games are weird, man. Um... <laughs> yeah. So in, in uh, getting the, uh, the best ending, um, like the truly best ending, do you have to completely is it like a new game plus where you have to go back through from your you know i guess second best ending and play through the game again or how does how does that actually work uh yeah you don't have to play through the whole thing again um you just i think you can get back to your old save that after you've beaten it and i i would assume there's like a flag that like uh triggers some new event because uh after you get that first ending you head back to uh, past the uh, final area, and you get a phone call, and like that just triggers everything. Like that triggers like you getting to know that particular character better, and uh, a new area with a very interesting lore built into like explaining what the heck's going on. I mean, <laughs> there's like a talking flower and stuff like that, and like there, there's like. There's, like, a past history between the characters that you don't really have much of a clue about, as well as, like, the fact that there used to be a human who lived with monsters similar to how the main character falls in and meets the monsters. Hmm. Yeah, and it's, uh, that's, like, one of my favorite parts or segments of the game, just because of the, uh, the atmosphere combined with the really neat music uh not to mention like the whole soundtrack i i really like the soundtrack it's it's a bunch of chip tunes that um have inspiration from games like Phoenix Wright and Toho um but there's like a special charm to them that uh makes it very easy and uh engaging like from area to area hmm. okay I don't know. It, it kind of sounds like it's, in some ways, it's it's not any 
single part of the game, but it's kind of how everything comes together that makes it so special. Um, but is there anything else, I don't know, off the top of your mind that uh, you can think of that makes it so special? Mm, I I really like how the game subverts your expectations of like a RPG game because like most RPG games, you just want to get to the meat and potatoes of the combat in which you um, kill a bunch of enemies like without caring. Like oh, these are just in my way, and I need mm. you know I, I need to get some experience and level up and get some new skills. Right. In this game, you actually have to consider like like the people that or the enemies that are blocking your way. I mean, like if you thought about like the creatures you killed in Dragon Quest, you'd you'd be like a monster. Like after <laughs> the thousands of creatures you killed, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. At first, when I played the game, I I didn't really like expect too much of it. I just thought it was more of like people just getting interested for whatever random reason. But I feel like the game is very well designed. And the developer, like, took all that they had, like, available to them and made the best product that they could or best piece of art they could. Mm. Uh, and I don't know. They're, I feel like, in my opinion at least, like, indie development has, like, a couple of, like, mm, like peaks every decade like i'd mm -hmm. feel, I, i'd say like cave story is like one of the best games of uh the 2000s and mm -hmm. for undertale like undertale would be one of those like landmark titles that really defined the scene and it's like it's also made by one person for the most part besides the art so like yeah i mean there's just something about the um auteur style of uh, game design that shines through. Sure. Uh, yep. Very cool. Okay. Well, um, I don't, I don't know if I have any more questions. Is, is there anything else that you want to say about the game? I mean, I know I kind of just asked you that in a, a different way, but I guess to, <laughs> you know, to, to wrap things up, any, any final statements uh, about... Undertale. Um, Earthbound. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, it's it's inspired by Earthbound, but I I, I forgot to mention it. I mean, so I, I've never uh, Earthbound and Mother are the the same series, right? Um, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, I've never played any of those. How how so is this uh, inspired by those games? I'd say it's mainly the humor mm. just like injecting humor into the the scenery and making little jokes here and there but like like everything else like toby fox who's the developer uh injects his own brand of humor and like uh style into everything he yeah. made basically uh have you played the um uh i'm not entirely sure how it's related to um Undertale, but the game it came out I think last fall or maybe it was two years ago. Uh, it was like Delta Rune or something. Yeah, like that. Delta yeah. Rune. Mm -hmm. 
the it's kind of like uh the first chapter of it or a demo sort of deal right i played okay. it uh i really enjoyed it but you're, are you asking specifically the uh connections uh yeah i, I guess more or less because i mean i know the uh the logo looks like it it's part of the same series i didn't know if it was or if that was just uh the developer style or what? Uh, uh, Delta Rune in particular is actually referring to, like a, like a symbol in Undertale. So okay. there are ties there, and there are uh, reoccurring characters that are that come from Undertale, probably implying or possibly implying, I guess, that this is like a timeline in which uh, the main character in Undertale freed all the monsters. And um, that's the world you're living in, but it's not really clear, like who your main character is and what that ending was. Which I don't know. Like it kind of, it was like very strange. It had a very surprise ending, uh, in which I think the character goes to sleep, and then he, he or she, because they, there's no specific gender to these characters. I think. Or the main character. Okay. I think they throw their heart out of their body and it goes into a cage or something like that. Very strange. Um, in terms of like general style, I mean, it's very clear that it's a Toby Fox-style game with all the dialogue and just the way the story tries to uh, appeal to emotion and mm-hmm. uh, character development. Okay. Like, I really want to play Deltarune as soon as it comes out well hopefully that won't be before too long because i mean it's been you know what it's been five years since undertale it's been a year and a half since the delta rune chapter came out um hopefully hopefully we'll see something from that yeah i wonder if they're gonna hire more people to assist with development like it sounds like a larger scale uh, project, but yeah. it won't be appealing to the same type of uh, people that really like Undertale, I guess. Why so? It's, I mean, like like the the style and everything is there, but you know, it won't have like these like particular types of encounters uh, in that direct way. I I would. Mm. It feels like Toby Fox is trying something new. Okay. And I think he's admitted that he won't try to make, like, Undertale 2. Like, this is gotcha. a side thing. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I, I guess we'll just have to wait and see what that is, uh, you know, when it when it comes out. Uh, so. Yep. Well, Garland, thank you so much for sitting down with me and chatting about Undertale. Um, and, uh, we will be back in just a little bit to talk about some more of our favorite games from the past 10 years. Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Dark Cast. I'm Jonathan Miley, and we are continuing our Games of the Decade discussion. Joining me for this segment is Brandon Boyd. How you doing, Brandon? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm excited to be here to talk about this game because I think pretty easily 
if I were to make a list of games of the decade, game, you know, my f- favorite games, top games from 2010 to 2019, this would be at the top um, or the, the bottom, whatever, the, the highest number, the most important, <laughs> the best. Uh, and that is The Witcher 3, um, which is, is weird to say because I've actually, like, I've played other games more than this. Uh, but I think I just get, um, not anxious, but overwhelmed by the, the sheer size of it. And it even like the Witcher three kind of ruined open world games for me after, after this, it's, I started playing other stuff and I was just like, you know what? They did it better. I don't need this. I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) I have pretty similar thoughts actually. Um, uh, the one caveat being is I don't think there is a game this generation that I have played more. Uh, mm. than The Witcher 3. Not even remotely close, but for a long period of time following the release of this game, I, I was pretty burned out on the uh, the old-school style of open-world games, you know, that Ubisoft checklist kind of style, which ruined a lot of that. It really wasn't until a, uh, a certain Nintendo game came out a few years ago that really changed my mind as to what an open-world game can be following The Witcher. Hmm. What was that? Uh, Breath of the Wild. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so, I, like, I, I honestly, I don't even know where to begin this discussion uh, because it's, one, it's just a huge game, and so much of it is done so well. Uh, it, I don't know. So I, what is your experience with the Witcher franchise as a whole, I guess? Where, where did you enter into the, the Witcher-verse? So I had played a bit of uh, the first game, um, not at launch, but probably not too long after launch. And uh, it didn't really click with me. And I don't think it clicked with many people at the time, you know? It's like sure. even even the word Witcher is weird. It was just some it weird is. some weird European dark fantasy game from a company no one's heard of. Just out of, out of curiosity, have you watched um, Joseph Anderson's four-hour-long video on... The Witcher. <laughs> I have, actually. I think it's his okay. best video yet. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and he spends like the first five minutes just talking about how the word Witcher is weird, so that, yeah. that just made me think of that. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, okay, so you, you pl- dabbled in the first one, but didn't didn't really click with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, read uh, any of the books? Did you play the second one? Kind of, where'd you go from there? So Witcher 2 came out and uh, was a big critical success, you know, it didn't... It, it's kind of it kind of set CD Projekt Red up to do big things. Um, it was a graphic powerhouse on PC, yep. and it was uh, praised for uh, diverging story paths and this like gray morality and uh, its characters especially. And it was one of those games I never thought I would get to play. I didn't have a PC capable of running something like that at the time. And then out of nowhere, just a couple of years later, CD Projekt Red pulled some kind of wizardry and managed to get that game running on an Xbox 360. And, Actually, uh, the, the next year. Oh, um, was it just a year? Okay. Yep. It wasn't yeah. even like a, a full year from launch to launch. Um, because I got... So I, I played the original Witcher, and uh, I did not... I got the enhanced edition uh, whenever that came out. I yeah. think I got like a boxed, you know, copy and everything. And... I I enjoyed it. It it's one of those games. The Witcher one is very similar for me to like Mass Effect in that like mm-hmm. combat is semi interesting, 
But really, it's just like the vehicle that you use to get to the story bits. It's so that you're like doing something, not just walking <laughs> from cutscene to cutscene. Um, and so while I I played it on the easiest setting and I didn't really enjoy the combat, but I also, I didn't hate it. Uh, but I did enjoy the world a lot. And I actually, I read the first, um, book of, of short stories, the, the last wish, which is partially what the, the Netflix, uh, season of the Witcher is, is based on. Um, I read that while I was playing the game. And so that was actually a really interesting experience. And I, I kind of attribute the fact that I read the book and played the game at the same time to where my like deep love of this world kind of came from. Oh, I, um, I can totally imagine that because but, after, after I played the Witcher two on the 360, I was, you know, I was totally engrossed and I couldn't yeah. wait for the sequel, which was a ways off at the time, but we were getting right. teases and we got some E3 footage and some early, early demonstrations and stuff. And then the game finally came out, Witcher three wild hunts and, you know, everyone loved it. It was critically praised, uh, considered a masterpiece by, by many, many people. And following that, I did go and I replayed the first game and I found a lot more enjoyment from it than I did mm. on those initial impressions. And I've also, at this point I've read the, uh, uh, both short story collections and the novel series uh, a couple okay. of times. So I'm, I'm very, very uh, into this world at this point. Yeah. Um, so going back to the, the second one, so that came out in May 2011. Um, and that was actually, 2011 is the year that I started writing for Dark Station, and The Witcher 2 was my game of the year, even though I could barely play the game. Um. Was that like a PC hardware thing, or is it just the yeah. way the combat worked? Or no, no, it was it was totally a PC hardware thing. I had, I think, I still had the computer that I built to play the original Far Cry, uh-huh. and uh, it did not go well. I had to basically to get about twenty frames a second. I had to run the game at all low settings with a resolution of like seven twenty p. And it was, it was rough. I did not finish the game on the PC. I could not like. I <laughs> it was impossible to play. That's why uh, it's but, so crazy that they even got it working on a 360. And it, it sure, is, it, it doesn't compare to the PC version for sure. But I mean, it's one of the best looking games on that console. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things where, like, if you compared a computer that was that had the same specs as the 360, which technically, like, the computer I had was more powerful than the Xbox 360, but the 360 version looked better and ran better than mm-hmm. it did on my computer. Uh, so that's that's where I finally played The Witcher 2, um, which is a game that I absolutely adored to, yeah. like, no end. Um, I, I really liked the the kind of change of the middle chapter that happens depending on what route you take. And I, oh man, I, I think I've replayed that game probably like five or six times. It was the, I believe it's the first game that I got all of the achievements for on the Xbox 360. And when I completed that on the dark difficulty, which, you know, makes everything more difficult it makes money more scarce and it puts these the special um, armors, and yeah, the swords, special yeah. armor out there. But if you try to use a armor and sword collection that's not complete, then it slowly kills you uh, while you're wearing it. So you basically have to wait until you have everything. And it's one of those things where you you basically have to mine the resources out of each chapter uh, completely to have enough stuff to build uh, the armor for that one. 
because uh, there's a, an armor set in each in each chapter. Um, but uh, but yeah, I uh, at that point, let's see. I think Blood of Elves and the second book, which is Baptism of Fire or mm-hmm. um, Time of Contempt. I I get the middle few. Witcher books confused. Uh, Time of Contempt is the the second one. So I think at that point, um, I had read Blood of Elves and, and Time of Contempt. Maybe uh, actually, I'm looking at the English releases. No, it was just Blood of Elves and the Last Wish at that time. Uh, a lot of stuff. It, it's interesting to see how like the the games delve into the world of the Witcher, and then to also look at the release of the books. Um, because, like, one of the weird things about the first two games is that Yennefer and uh, Ciri, which are huge parts of the show, they're huge parts of the books, they're huge parts of the third game, are just nowhere to be seen in those games. Yeah, I kind of wanted to bring <laughs> that up, actually. Like, if you look at uh, CD Projekt's uh, trajectory over the development of these three Witcher games, you see them grow in basically every facet. So, I mean, the first yep. game is... It's kind. Of, it's kind of a mess. It's this homunculus it of is. like outdated uh, Bioware tech mess. that they've like rigged up to do something. And that that thing they were trying to do was you know creative, ambitious storytelling. Right. And then they get to two, and I think that game furthered on that, but also cemented them as people that were very technically proficient. You know, um, mm-hmm. that like Witcher Two has this thing, some crazy super sample mode that you can turn on. I think they called it Uber sampling. Where yeah, it, yeah, it renders it, it renders everything in the game like four times and then samples them all down for a better picture and computers still have a hard time running it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's basically like a super super sampling, mm-hmm. um, which for people that don't know is is usually a form of anti aliasing where, uh, like Brandon just said, you have a higher resolution and then you kind of shrink it back down so that everything is is clearer and yeah it's it's funny actually i mean even just the witcher 2 in general runs worse on my computer than the witcher 3 does um Mm -hmm. and i i don't think i think part of that is optimization i think part of that is them learning and and kind of revising their tools um but i mean especially with the the uber sampling thing like i i cannot run that (laughs) game (laughs) but i think the price you pay for um cd project you know discovering themselves of the development of those two games are two games with uh standalone worthwhile narratives that are definitely worth experiencing but something very uh very separate they're very uh much a pastiche of like witcher-esque things if you're familiar with the books they capture a lot of the vibe, but it's not really, it's not really completely there. And it's like yeah. by the time they completed those two games, they were confident in their tech, they were confident in their storytelling. They get to Witcher Three and they say, "Okay, we're finally going to make like a, a legit sequel to the books now." Sure. Yeah, it's the the first one is weird in that it's like the one of the main characters, um, Alvin, who's this child um, that you kind of protect throughout the game, is is very much like a stand-in for, for Ciri. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both these, like, incredibly capable beings that have, like, untapped magical power that they don't know how to control. Um, and it's, it's really interesting. Just the, I don't know, it's, it's like the first game is like, okay, we want to almost do like our own version of some of the stories because 
as as far as I know, like pretty much each game retells certain stories in different ways. It's right. almost like the the way the books like to take fairy tales that we know and kind of adapt them into the world of the Witcher. The Witcher games like to take the quote unquote fairy tales of the books and adapt them into the games, uh, which is, is kind of a yeah, absolutely. An interesting like the first game thing. takes the the story about Princess Ada uh, being right. the Striga, full test daughter. Um, which is one of the first uh, short stories in the Witcher like compendium, um, mm-hmm. and it makes it like a major plot point. But that's something that should have already happened in Geralt's life. They like rig it up. They take the skeleton of it and make it so it can also fit into the game's universe. It's a strange thing to do. But when they didn't know that they were going to be able to do a whole trilogy, they didn't under- they didn't understand how successful they could be. It makes right. a lot more sense. Right, and it's also interesting that when they set out to make this game, they went to Andrzej Sapkowski, the author of the original books, and they were like, hey, we want to do this you know, game version of your stuff. Can we get the rights? Um, and he thought it was going to be a total flop, and so instead of asking for a percentage, uh, he basically sold them the rights to do it as a, a flat fee. And uh, last year, 2019, uh, there were some legal disputes between him and CD Projekt Red, uh, and they basically came to a new agreement—a uh, a new agreement that was now a uh, a royalties-based thing instead of a original flat fee because he had no idea uh, right. that the games were going to be that successful. I mean, nobody could have. Uh, but it's—I don't know—it's it, interesting just to think back and look back on CD Projekt Red. That like how many other kind of obscure. Uh, European, you know, RPG studios from 2007 are making one of the most anticipated games of 2020, that being Cyberpunk 2077. Like, I know, it's, right? It's so, nuts, like, where they've come <laughs> in 13 years. So The Witcher came out the same year as Mass Effect, the first Mass Effect, and I think right. that comparison you drew is is very valid. But it's it's kind of wild to look at the state of how things turned out where this weird European company no one had ever heard of before is like you said they're making one of the most anticipated titles this year whereas Bioware which is a they legend legendary Mass western Effect Andromeda yeah that's, that's... <laughs> they made uh Anthem I almost forgot the name of it <laughs> but uh, uh yeah nobody cares about that um that's... <laughs> but you're talking about the studio that had also once upon a time made uh Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter Nights right. and stuff, you know, legendary. Yeah. Uh, it's yep. hard to imagine. It, it, it's it's hard to fathom how it turned out the way it did, but um, it, I think it's about ambition, like creative ambition, really. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, so yeah, then then The Witcher Three comes out in two thousand and fifteen, um, which it's crazy that it's been five years and only last year, you know, it was ported <laughs> to the Switch. Which is also, I mean, as much of a marvel as The Witcher 2 being taken to the 360, The Witcher 3 being taken to the Switch is also kind of nuts. Yeah, it's like like the same scale. Because the the Switch is about as powerful, a little more so, than the 360 and the PS3. And I remember when The Witcher 3 had come out, they said, you know, that they were pretty explicitly saying, like, oh, this would have been impossible on previous generations. But lo and behold... Uh, someone made it work. I can't remember the name of the porting studio off the top of my head, but it's uh, incredibly impressive. Yeah, I think I think it may have been Saber Interactive. They do a lot of um, ports. Anyway, anyway, doesn't matter. Um, 
So, so yeah, uh, The Witcher 3 is just, God, it's so good. I really wish, two things. One, I wish there was a, a demo of The Witcher 3 that people could play, and it just be the White Orchard, like, introductory section. Which, that, as a demo, is longer than some games. Yeah. Um, like, mm-hmm. you can spend, like, ten hours in White Orchard pretty easily. Um... And it gives you, like, a great taste of kind of just the overall progression of the game. As I think any good RPG has, it has that kind of opening area that is basically, you know, the the way that they talk about um, kind of marketing games, that vertical slice. Like, this Mm -hmm. is essentially, you know, a bite-sized chunk of what this game is. Um, But, so I wish that was available for people to just try, because I think... As much as this game has been played and as successful as this game has been, because one of the weird things about The Witcher is if you look at sales, uh, I think especially last year, like it sold more in 2019 than it did in 2018. Like this game has not slowed down. (laughs) Yeah, like largely thanks to that uh, the Netflix adaptation. Like I think it had more people playing it uh, pretty recently than like ever before. It's it's nuts. It is. Um, but so in addition to that, I also wish you could get the, uh, blood and wine expansion as mm-hmm. a standalone because you can even, I mean, you can get the game for cheap. Um, like you can get the complete edition, which has the base game, all of the free DLC, obviously, uh, the hearts of stone expansion and the blood and wine expansion. Uh, you can find them on sale for sometimes even like 10 bucks, depending on, on where you're looking on Xbox, PlayStation, uh, Steam or GOG, but um, but I don't know. I th- I think the the blood and wine is is a great example of kind of like the the white orchard thing, but on the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, I think there are plenty of people that would want to play the The Witcher three, but I mean it's it's the reason I, that I haven't actually done a full playthrough of the thing. It's so big. I remember when I got to like the halfway point of the main game, which is uh, you get to Skellige, and like I zoom out on the map and I realize it's just as big as Velen, and I'm yeah. just like, oh god, I can't. Like, what are you doing <laughs> to me, developers? Like, I can't do this. Yeah, it reminds me of so when I was a kid and I would play like Final Fantasy VII. I remember being shocked to discover that. You come out of Midgar and there's an entire world, and not only is there an entire world, you're going to go to like different continents and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Witcher Three is the first game to give me that feeling again, and the effect mm. is a lot more potent because it's it's grounded. You're there in a third person view, and you just arrive in Skellige, and all of a sudden you open your map, and like you said, it's not just a new region to explore; it's a continent. Right. It's just yeah. it's just as big. Uh, and it's it's a little more sparsely populated. It's got a lot more water and stuff, but the scale is there. Yeah, no, it's it's just as big, like physically, but you don't have like a person every thirty seconds to give you a quest. Um, so you do kind of go through the the content much faster. Uh, but for I, I know several people, like I, I know um, Joel, the owner of the website, he, I think he got like 20 or 25 hours into the Witcher three before he just like gave up because there's too much stuff to do. Um, and that's like the perfect amount of time to complete blood and wine. Mm. Um, I wish it was available standalone again, because I'm sure there are plenty of people that don't realize you could get the entire game for, you know, $10, $15 and just jump straight into blood and wine. Um, 
Yeah. But if it was available on its own, then you could sit down and have this kind of, you know, more than a bite size, like a full meal size of a game. Um, and just have a complete, you know, Witcher story. And and also, Blood and Wine is just, it's such a pretty area. Tucson is, is fantastic. Yeah, it's very fan, fantastical. It really captures, um, so like, when it comes to those expansions, I think Hearts, and, Hearts of Stone is one of the best stories I've ever seen in a video game, period. And I, I love the base game of The Witcher 3, but like that main story isn't why. Whereas mm-hmm. Hearts of Stone story is just spectacular. Sure. Blood Blood and Wine is like a completely different approach than that. Where I don't think its story is as strong as Hearts of Stone, mm-hmm. but it's got more to offer you gameplay wise, and it also just captures that uh, that Witcher feel more. Like it feels like the novels. It feels like reading a story from the novels. Right. Yeah, and and one of the things one of the things that's kind of interesting about when um, Blood and Wine comes out as as a video game uh, is one of the main characters is a vampire named Regis. Mm-hmm. Who, if you look at like the releases of the books, so that came out like a year later, twenty sixteen, and I think that's the year that Tower of the Swallow came out, which I think is the first book where Regis shows up. Um, so it's, it's really interesting to see like the kind of expansion and the the depth of the the Witcher games as they kind of get into the lore of the books. Almost kind of match up if you wanted if you were reading the books as they were released and playing the games as they were released. You're kind of digging into the entire Witcher world at the, the same rate, um, in some kind of weird way. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right, and I I feel like the the localization of the books, you know. It's not. It's not even a feeling. It's just a fact. It tried to capitalize on the success of the video games. They even changed oh, yeah. the cover art of the books to just be some crappy CG renders from, from yes. the games. So. Yes, that is. So I think the the first two books, um, the the Last Wish, has a picture of the Witcher's medallion, which it's it's the one from the first game. Like yeah. it's mm-hmm. like it's it's done to look not like it's video game art, uh, but it is entirely that medallion. And then the Blood of Elves has, like, the original cover has, like, a a shield with some knives and arrows on it or something like that. Mm -hmm. But then after that, uh, they completely stopped that train of of cover art and started copying the... um, started copying the games and it's not even like they use game covers like you said they use just like screenshots from the game and they look so dumb. They look really bad. I would love to have like a hardcover edition of the whole series with like some if not actual cover art just some basic typeface because they're they're pretty bad looking on a shelf yeah they're they're good books like i i like them quite a bit so i so it's it's interesting i i only read the what the last book um lady of the lake uh-huh. last year and going into it i was very confused because i had been reading them around the time that they had come out and you know, just having a year or two between books, like I could not remember anything that was happening. And when, so I went back and reread all of them. And uh, when I got to Lady of the Lake again, I realized that it starts like um, it starts in the middle of the action. Like it, it's not at a place where you would know what's happening from the last book. And yeah. then it, you know, it goes so far and then it starts to recount. And I realized that I, I wasn't actually confused. That's just the way the book started. Um, 
but while I I absolutely adore the especially the um, uh, the short stories Last Wish and Sword of Destiny, I think those work extremely well at exploring mm-hmm. Geralt and exploring the world. Uh, I also I think Season of Storms is really good. Like it feels too. like this. It feels like a series of side quests, honestly. Like, there's no real main story. It just kind of happens that, you know, Geralt shows up at a town, he gets into a a fight, his Witcher swords get stolen, and so he starts having to do odd jobs to get money to buy back his swords, and that just kind of leads him on a series of tasks that eventually winds back to him getting his swords and him moving on. And, like, yeah. that's it. That is basically the, the substance of that book. It's funny, too, because that book was written much later. Like, that's a recently written book. Yes, um, that, was, that was written in 2013, yeah. um, which is 14 years after the last book was written. And and since since it's like a newer book, and that's one that I feel like people are probably least likely to read. I don't want to give too much away, but it's interesting because I feel like the ending to that book is kind of like a uh, tepid acknowledgement of like the video game success. It felt like Sarkovsky finally, you know, letting letting the shield down just a little bit because he's been pretty hostile towards that video game franchise ever since it found success. Yeah, it's his own fault for that. I mean, I don't. Like I, I'm glad he wrote these books, but I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for him being hostile to them mm. because, like, it's that was your decision, dude. No, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he's much happier now that you know he's making money off the Netflix show and he's making money off of the the games now since they they've reached a new agreement. Yeah. Um, but by and large, I don't really care for the the quote unquote Witcher saga. Um, it's interesting because the game, like each of the games, except for Geralt. Uh, characters change a lot. Yeah. Um, like Triss in the first game is is not Triss um, from the books or the other games. She is much more stoic. She's much kind of meaner, crueler. She's in a lot of ways she's a lot more like Yennefer, yeah. um, which I think they did because they didn't, for whatever reason, they didn't want to introduce Yennefer into this. Uh, game and uh, but I don't know so so playing the games and especially like the the second one replaying it so many times I have a much stronger affinity to the the versions of the characters that are in the games than are the ones that are in the books yeah um, which, it's funny because yeah. in The Witcher three in particular um they really get the characterization right like you can play The Witcher 3 and then go back and read the books and totally read it as those same characters from the video games without missing much of a beat. Every once in a while, you'll get this like cognitive dissonance where it's like they do something or they say something that they that video game, game character wouldn't do, and it does feel mm-hmm. weird <laughs> if that's where you're coming from. But. Yeah. Uh, but the, honestly, the, the thing that really kind of struck me as the, the biggest difference is... <clears throat> Um, one there, there's a, a scene. It's at the. I've talked about this on on the Gamers Read podcast because I, I read them last year and, and talked about them then. But it's. I think it's at the end of Time of Contempt, which is um the the second book, and Siri has been like flung into the desert by magic, mm-hmm. uh, and she gets up with a a, a band of 
uh, miscreants, uh, some other like kids that are you know close to her age that are they're yeah. called the the rats, and she's almost molested by one of the characters, mm-hmm. and then like one of the females of the group, um, she you know gets rid of the guy, and then she proceeds to molest Siri. Yeah, like come and, grooms her. It's 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 yeah, weird. and 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 the book just never does like anything with it, like. Siri doesn't grow as a character from it. She doesn't. She doesn't get to get revenge on anybody or anything. Like it's. It's a really awkward moment that. Like I don't know. That just when I when I reread that book, like it for whatever reason, the scene did not dawn on me the first time I read it, and the second time, or maybe even the third time. I remember at what how many times I'd read it when I got to it last it, year. It's definitely but something it just, I would preface to anybody yeah, that wanted to read it, them coming from the games is that. These stories are from the 80s and 90s, and that's not an excuse. Yeah. That's not an excuse no. at all. But yeah. its treatment of female characters throughout can be not very pleasant at, at times. Right. And it's even worse when it's a character that, you know, for you know the first two books, the short stories, you're kind of identifying with Geralt you know, as the main character. Mm-hmm. And he takes care of Ciri, so now you're kind of mentally taking care of, of Siri. And then so this kind of, you know, person that is in your care gets taken advantage of. And it's just like, I want to murder everybody right now. And this book is not letting me. Um, <laughs> and then the, so that's, that kind of sent me just on a downhill trajectory with enjoying the books from there. But it was really, it wasn't really, it was also in Lady of the Lake where, you start to realize that everybody wants Siri, not because she is the savior of the universe, um, but because she's going to give birth to the sun that is going to be the savior of the universe and fulfill Eithlina's prophecy and, and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's not the way the game goes. The game is like, nope, screw it. Uh, Siri is not Mary, mother of Jesus. Siri is Jesus. She gets to save the day. <laughs> And I like that more. I like Siri being the hero. There are some definite differences in just like overall tone at times. To now that I think about it, even um, uh, Season of Storms, the most recent one, that one that was written in 2013, has some like strangely off color like descriptions of like uh, the figure of uh, women and stuff. Yeah. It's uh, and that's just like the tone it was going for originally. So I guess it's following up. On that, it's like a medieval fantasy kind of thing, but and it, uh, yeah, yeah. There's, I don't know. There, it's, like it's, you said, it, it's not something to be excused. Yeah. But the the books were written in the, uh, I think the original stories were actually written in like the 80s and put in magazines, and then they were you know brought together as books in the 90s, and everything was written in the 90s. So you know we've got 20 to 30 years of of cultural differences there. We've also got cultural differences of us being in the U.S. versus Polish. I don't. I don't, or Poland, I don't know yeah. what all differences are there, but that is something to keep in mind. And then there's also just the fact that these games do take place in a nitty-gritty medieval universe. Um, but I think even with all of that, uh, there we shouldn't lower exp- expectations for the the treatment of women. And it's because of some of that stuff that's like that's like one of the things that I like about the game is most women that you come in contact with are 
badasses. Yeah. They may be horny and end up sleeping with Geralt at some point in the game, but they are badass. Yeah, they, they're also capable. the strongest, <laughs> most poetically charged characters in yeah. the, the entire franchise. They're they're responsible for like every major event almost. Um, they're they're the most important characters, but uh, they're also, um, you know, very sexually provocative and and such. And that's something you have to reconcile. You have to kind of like decom uh, decompartmentalize these different parts of your brain but uh it, it's there and i think it's uh, worth talking about but it also yeah. doesn't dismiss how good the character writing is overall sure absolutely um but yeah so with with what like half an hour of conversation under the belt of not actually talking about the witcher 3 <laughs> the witcher 3 uh it's it's interesting in that like it doesn't it it does continue the story of the first two games um, like they, they do follow in line, but except for learning things about the world, uh, there, there's no real reason to have to play the Witcher one or the Witcher two in order to play the Witcher three. And I would actually argue for anybody new to the series, the third game is actually the best place to jump into it because there, the studio's writing has gotten much better and their familiarity with the universe has gotten much stronger and it actually does a much better job of introducing you to the world of the Northern Realms, whereas the other two games are just kind of like, and we're going, and just you, you'll catch up as we go. Just, just go. Yeah, just <laughs> yeah. I would definitely agree, uh, especially in the sense that, aside from like the very, very end of The Witcher Two, like post credits kind of stuff, like not much that happens in the first two games is all that important to the narrative of three. Um, no, I mean it's it, it's the same way in both games. Basically, the the post game cutscene in the the first game sets up the sequel. You have somebody who attempts to assassinate Foltest, um, which that's the reason you're guarding Foltest in the second game, and it goes from there. And then in, at the end of the second game, Geralt gets his memories back, and then you see that uh, Nilfgaard is launching its assault on the Northern Realms again. Like that's it. Right. That that's the only thing that really ties those games together. Yeah. It marks like the third time they've invaded the Northern Realms or yes. something, but uh they're gonna do it this time. Mm-hmm. Um so but yeah, so the Witcher Three starts out there in White Orchard, and like you said, I think it's a great starting point. Um you I feel like if you came in completely fresh faced, you'd still feel like uh you're just thrown into the pot, you know, not really understanding what's going on. But it's sure. it's it's intentional. You can pick up on it pretty quick. There's a lot of context clues and stuff. Right. Um, yeah, but it's just it, it's interesting because just the the way that it has to introduce people to stuff like with or um like Jennifer and Siri that if you've only played the games, then you may not be super familiar with these characters. Like it, it's taking care to introduce um, players of the game to the wider Witcher universe, but then also just knowing that, you know, this is the first time that the game has been truly multi-platform. First game was PC only. The second game was on the PC a year later on the Xbox. Now it's on PC, Xbox, and PlayStation all at the same time. Um, mm -hmm. you're, gonna, you're going to get a much wider audience from that, and I think they put a lot of effort into... Just the way that characters talk, it's easier to understand what's going on. It's not easy, 
it's easier because like I said, the, the first three games, and I would say even like the second game is, is possibly worse than the first one. Um, just because it's political jargon is so dense. Oh yeah. They're naming countries and stuff that don't even turn, that don't turn up in any of the games that are like on the yeah. other side of the world. Yeah. And stuff, it's, so. Um, but yeah, so Wide Orchard is is great. Then you get to go to to Velen from there, uh, and then that's the area where the side quest or main quest that everybody likes to talk about, the Red Baron, appears. And that's probably, I mean, it's I don't, it's not cliche, but it is. It's talked to death at this point, but it's talked to death for a good reason. the mm-hmm. The Red Baron is such a good example of having a a terrible, terrible person that you were not supposed to side with necessarily, but they write him in a way that he becomes, you know, partially understandable. Like his actions aren't forgivable, but you actually do get, you know, an understanding of kind of his side of the story as it were. Yeah. Right. It's uh, I think it's bloody Baron. Um, those are, yeah, Bloody Bear, not Red yeah. Bear. That's, so, that's pizza. Right. Uh, I don't think he's written in such a way that you're supposed to take his side or even that you empathize with him. I'm sure some people will do that, but I don't sure. think that's the point. But you do get a perspective, one that you probably wouldn't be interested in otherwise unless the game didn't force you into the first part of that. That tends mm-hmm. to go overlooked, too. That's not really like a side quest. The conclusion of that line is a side quest, but Geralt does have to go there to begin right. with. Um that that's a good opportunity to talk about this game side quest though, because that's what's praised the most about it, I think. And mm-hmm. I think why it succeeds on the level that it does is that it has this um this like tier system of quest, right? So you've got you have your big main quest and they're very clearly demarcated for you so you can see that this is indeed a main quest that will progress the story and you have to do this. And then there are Side quests, these are the ones you just uh, encounter by talking to characters, and they'll give you something to do, you learn more about them. Um, There's lots of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then there's contracts, you pick those up off of the message boards, it's where Geralt uh, tracks down a monster, kills it, takes the trophy back, all that kind of stuff, the very Witcher stuff. Which is funny in that this is the first game that's actually allowed you to just kind of be a Witcher on the side. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that's three in general, not just because it continues the narrative from the books. I think it's also just the first one to like really get the vibe right, like really mm-hmm. nail it down. And then, you know, below that, and I wish the game did a, very, a better job at signposting this because I think it's why a lot of people fall off uh, after playing for 20 or 30 hours is beneath all that, you have these uh, just these things on your map that are like, question marks and that'll be like a monster den or just some bandits you kill and you can get some treasure chests and stuff and none of that's very good it's it's just there if you want some more gameplay or you want to fill in the time between going to other objectives as you run the map it's not like very compelling content i think a big part of witcher 3's problem is um people coming in from other open world games your assassin's creeds and stuff like that uh, where they're used to seeing everything on the map and it's a checklist and you gotta do it all well, if you try to do that in The Witcher 3, you're going to get burned out so fast sure. because um, there are probably like six, four or five hundred of those question marks just all scattered all throughout the map. And none of that content's very good. Every once in a while, you might find like a legit side quest from one, 
But uh, my main advice for anybody that wants to play this fantastic game is to just ignore that stuff. Unless it's like on your way to doing something else. Sure. Just forget about it. You can, you can turn them off in the map even. Just do that. Right. Uh, yeah. It, I mean, it's funny. They they may range from something where, you know, it's part of a, a series of quest lines where you're getting, uh, rebuilding, like, old Witcher armor for yourself, mm-hmm. uh, which those can be very interesting. Uh, but I, I found, like, I did the, the cat armor because uh, I thought it looked cool. Oh, yeah. And, uh, um... Like, once I did that quest for the armor, I didn't do any of the other quests for the armor because I didn't think, one, they would be very different, and I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, but, like, I don't know. I just, I had the one set. I had my playstyle. I didn't really feel a need to do other stuff. But so, you know, one of those question marks can be tied to something like that, that, like you said, is, is bigger, or be tied to a, a side quest or something like that. But a lot of them will just be like a monster den, which is literally just like a hole in the ground that you need to throw a grenade into and blow it up. And that's it. You completed it. Now you move on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's it's not... Yeah, it, it's not big content there, um, but it could easily get you burned out if you were trying to go around it and do all of it, absolutely. And it just speaks to the amount of content in the game. So the last time I played this, um, I did everything I wanted to, so I did all the main quests. I did all of the like more major side quests that I found, which I think was most of them. There could have been some I missed. Um and I did all the contracts, all the monster contracts. Mm. And that's it. I didn't do any of the question marks unless they yeah. were just like right there. Like I just ignored that stuff completely. And then I played the expansions. Mm-hmm. And even ignoring those hundreds and hundreds of little dots and question marks on the map, my playthrough is over 150 hours. Mm. And it's important to note too that it's like that 150 hours I mentioned. That's like, that's all compelling content. Like, yeah. The thing that really separates The Witcher 3 from games even now um, is the writing. And it's not even that the writing is going to give you like a good thematic lesson all the time or that it's going to be something super interesting. It's just that character writing, even if it's just the guy giving you the contract to go kill the monster, it's just couched so well in the world. It all fits together like this neat little puzzle. Um, you really inhabit the character because everything surrounding you is just that well written. Yeah. Absolutely. Um I don't know the the way that it's it's world works. Uh you don't really have a, a fog of war, but as you traverse areas, uh then, you know, items appear on your map and stuff like that. Um but it it's one of those games and I'm not I I guess because its focus is so much on the actual content versus just the, like you were calling it, the, the checklist of, of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like, when I got done with the game and tried to play other open-world games after this, I was like, like this isn't as good. This isn't as compelling because you're cry- you're trying to flaunt all of the, the crap. Like, I don't, I don't need the crap. I want the good stuff. And right. most games, good stuff isn't as good as The Witcher 3's. Right, I had that I had that experience just a couple of years ago when I was playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which I think is a good game. I like it. It is, um, but it is. But it feels so like it's ways, trying to ape The Witcher Three and like not getting the point. <laughs> it does, yeah, no. It there there are literally, I would say there are like three or four quests that are on their own right, legitimately interesting and compelling in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the the thing that actually got me to play Assassin's Creed Odyssey was watching a video on YouTube where they were talking about a side quest, um, which is basically a retelling of the uh, Oedipus uh, saga. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you meet a character called uh, Supidio, which is uh, Oedipus backwards. And as you do the uh, the quest, you basically reenact kind of the the basic pillars of that story. And it was, like, in the game, it's kind of played for a laugh. And it yeah. was actually, you know, pretty funny to, to watch and play through. Uh, and then there are a couple of, like, island-wide quests with uh, Mykonos and a couple of other islands that are actually, like, a lot of fun and, like I said, like, actually compelling. But by and large, that game does, does not understand what makes The Witcher 3 compelling. And I would say, by and large, I mean, the world is interesting, but it, it's really the characters. It's getting to know Siri. It's getting to know or having known uh, Dandelion and um, Triss and Jennifer and oh crap, what's the dwarf's name? Uh, Zoltan, Zoltan Chive. Yeah. Um, it's it's getting to know like all of them, and your investment in the world and in their stories are because of the well written characters, not just because a plot is is interesting. Yeah, and that's that's the most key part because if you if you look at the design of like The Witcher 3, it's like from a gameplay standpoint, uh granted it was more impressive in 2015, um but now especially it's it's nothing impre- nothing too impressive. I mean, I think the combat is like pretty good if you play on the hardest difficulty and below that it's just it's mostly just kind of button mashy. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, but it 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 breaks its gameplay into like stages, like you said. So the way it typically goes is you, uh, you approach someone, you get very well-written dialogue. It establishes even the most minor quest giver is like this pretty interesting character. You get a back and forth with Geralt. It hooks you. It's got that hook. That's the important part. And then you go do, um, some investigation stuff. Usually you ride your horse somewhere and then you get to a place and you get to investigate. You figure out what's happening. You look for clues and Geralt has all these comments that just fill it in more. It's a little more fleshed out because gameplay-wise, all you're doing is holding down the left trigger and clicking the things that are highlighted. Right. It's not interesting, but it feels like it is. Uh, and then usually, once you figured out what happens, you break out into combat, which, like I said, can vary from you know not very good to just sort of okay. Um, it's not that gameplay that makes The Witcher, but it is that loop. And that loop works because of how good the moment-to-moment writing is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but but part of that is even just the... Not necessarily just the... I mean, it is the writing. Uh, but it's... I don't know. It's, it's the way the characters are written. And it's how close and how often you are with those characters. Um, if you look at something like Assassin's Creed... And the people that you're probably the, the Odyssey, which is yeah. you know the one that most apes, the Witcher, which I would even, like I want to call it like a Witcher three light, even though it's it's not really light. It's still pretty yeah. It's probably but it's, it's probably it's, even longer on analog yeah, honesty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so much of that content is just the the crap. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um. But the the characters that you really spend the most time with are like. 
Oh crap! I'm I'm forgetting people's names. So um, no, the main guy is Alexios. No, um, that he's not the main guy. He's the main antagonist. Cassandra's the main guy. Alexios is crap. We're not, <laughs> we're not talking about. So him. it's Alexios and Cassandra. Yeah. Um. Oh crap! But the the other main characters, uh, not Sophocles. It's uh, not Socrates. Soc- Soc- they're Socrates. Socrates and uh, Herodotus. Yeah. Um. So like those are are two of the main characters that you spend time with. But even then. Like you, I don't know. You don't have conversations with them on the same level that you do. Uh, right. like characters I, in the Witcher. I remember and, getting to the big city in Odyssey, and you start meeting people like Socrates, and I'm like, "Oh, this is cool. This is going to be like this game's Novigrad moment." And you know, without giving too much away, you don't get to actually spend too much time there. Like it, yeah. it comes and goes, and it's it's a pretty big disappointment. And then you're off to Sparta, and I got there, and the game was already seventy hours. I was already seventy hours in. And I just stopped. Like I, I, I couldn't go any further. And I enjoyed what I played, but it doesn't have that that hook. The writing isn't compelling right. enough. The characters aren't charming enough. There's no chemistry. Right. Um, and I, I think to an extent, like chemistry comes with time spent with characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are a lot of quests that you do in The Witcher where you are doing them with or around or for your acquaintances in the game. So, like, they're kind of this constant presence. Uh, because, I mean, Geralt is is interesting in and of himself to an extent, but only in so much as his surroundings kind of allow him to be. It's an argument that I've made against um, Uncharted for a long time. Everybody loves Nathan Drake, but Nathan Drake is only as good as Elena and Sully allow him to be. Like, Lara Croft in the rebooted Tomb Raider franchise, and, and all the Tomb Raiders, but Lara Croft, especially in the new games, is not as interesting as Nathan Drake because she doesn't have the same supporting cast. And I'll even go insofar as to say the Mandalorian suffers a lot because the Mandalorian is in a ship by himself in the Disney show, not interacting with anything except a little baby Muppet. And yeah. if he actually had a crew... To be a character around, that show would be a lot more interesting. And that's one of the reasons why The Witcher 3 is as interesting as it is. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I can totally see where you're coming from. I, um, I totally just shit on everybody's favorite things. <laughs> I don't care. But also, I, it's <laughs> like it's it's the length of The Witcher 3 that really allows um, yeah. that kind of stuff, I think. Because... Um, it, even if you're not with those other characters for the majority of The Witcher 3, um, that probably still makes up like 40 hours worth of game when you are. And, you know, that uh, it's it's not a relative kind of thing. That time compounds. Um, so you can get to have a full game's worth of character development and character interaction. And you get still get uh, to be off on your lonesome with the horse. You still get the wandering Witcher feel of just hunting monsters and right. doing contracts and stuff. You get to have both. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, it's almost... I would say, of the games that I've played recently, the thing that has done the best with, like, a party system, even though it's it's a different type of party system uh, as far as side characters go, would be, like, uh, Obsidian's The Outer Worlds. Uh, doing, like... It, it reminded me thinking of doing the quest line for Dandelion and Priscilla, it reminded me of the quest line in The Outer Worlds where you're setting up uh, Parvati on a date with the 
main ship engineer of of the groundbreaker in that game um it's a, a lot of games i feel like just don't get side characters it, it, it's weird because like even thinking about like what makes the witcher side characters i mean it's like yeah it's it's written well yeah you get to spend time with them and like i don't know what tangible thing really to point to that makes everything work so well in this game but it does it <laughs> oh without a doubt um what do you think of the witcher 3 as um a game about fatherhood like do you have any opinions on that because i think it falls pretty firmly in the middle of like a period of like Dadning, like the dadning yeah. video games. Yeah, got, I would, I would got like prob- The Walking Dead and mm-hmm. uh, The Witcher Three and The Last of Us, and now like yep. God of War. Yes, um, I think by and large, I think that has a lot to do with simply the people that make games being young when you know they started making games mm-hmm. and so we as players also being young when we played those young creators as games um there was a lot of macho posture like peacocking around you know trying to be cool uh because that was relevant to who a lot of us were when we were playing those games and to who the creators were when they were making them and then as they matured and as they got families and as we grew up and hopefully mature and get families or whatever um different things become relevant so now you're not the guy you're you're not James Bond who is you know being suave and cool and having sex with every woman that he sees you're now older and have somebody that you are are charged with and um and stuff like that it's let's see i it probably i don't know if it necessarily started but it le- the the biggest one would probably have been the last of us as as you mentioned mm-hmm. uh and in some ways i don't know if any game has done better than that game the Witcher's approach is really unique, um, you know, spoilers or whatever, but, like, yeah. to get the good ending in The Witcher, uh, you just have to, like, you just have to be a good dad. That's, like, the only right. choices yeah. that matter to it. And it's being a good dad in The Witcher view is um, a lot different than the approach in other games. You get that ending by giving Siri autonom- autonomy. <laughs> like, right. you have to, like, guide her, but you can't take over for her either. Yeah, no, it's 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 interesting because it definitely actually kind of continues in some ways from the last or not the Last of Us in The Walking Dead because in The Walking Dead, um, there is no morality meter in that game mm-hmm. uh, as far as like Paragon points or Renegade points or light or dark or anything like that. Really, your barometer for how you're doing as a person is Clementine in that game, and when you stab a guy with a pitchfork. And then, you know, Clementine will remember that. Like, that is a whole lot of evil points right there. <laughs> yeah. So, it's just interesting for that period in, in particular. It's like, you have these games that are not just about, like, being dad, being a dad, mm-hmm. being parents. They also seem to be very critical of the way um, we, we kind of, like, raise our kids. Because they're sort of about, like, letting children make their own decisions. Um, you know, the ending of the last of us toys with this mm-hmm. a lot too, in a very, uh, divisive sort of way. Sure. 
Um, yeah, I mean the yeah the the Last of Us would I I guess be the the next big uh, link in the chain. Uh, then The Witcher, and then then probably God of War. And I don't feel like it's been as big since God of War came out. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, I think part of it is is just look. It's a, a natural way for games to mature, considering they are largely male created. Um, so just as the people that make them change and grow it's it's a way for those people to kind of struggle and work through possibly um those areas of, of their life um but the the witcher 3 is is definitely interesting because you know by and large there's no morality system or anything like that and the the third game is the only one that passes any sort of judgment on any decisions that you make on the other games, you know, you can choose who you're going to side with, whether it's mm. the Knights of the Flaming Rose or the Scoia'tael. If you're going to uh, side with uh, the what um, King Hinsult, or if you're going to side with the, the Elves again, or if you're going to go kind of the middle path. Yeah. The the third game, there's. <sighs> A lot of the what side are you going to choose are left for side quests. Uh, this is really just about you going after Siri, finding her, and then facing th- the wild hunt. And so your you know big decisions that come in for the main game are how you interact with Siri. And there's really only I think three or four. There's not a lot of them, but it's it's really simple stuff. I mean, one is like, do you have a snowball fight with her? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, of course. Of course you're going to have a snowball fight with your daughter. Like, who the hell doesn't do that? But there's also stuff like, does she uh, get to trash Avalok's room? And if you're approaching it a certain way, if you're thinking of trying to game the system, you might think like, oh, like a good dad would be stern here or something. But no, the right. good choice is to let her feel her feelings and destroy right. the place. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting approach. And it, those choices determine your ending. It does, uh, which yeah. is borderline nonsensical, but it but it works. You get the you get the impression. You get what they're going for, right? I, I think it it ultimately has to do like with Siri has the capability to end this to stop the the white frost, um, but does she believe in herself enough to actually be able to do it? Uh, and it's basically you know whether or not she thinks you're there for her and that is determined kind of by those those decisions that you make mm-hmm. uh in in the final uh section did did siri um continue witchering with you or did she go off to become the empress of of nilfgaard yeah so she continued witchering and i think okay. that's determined um as to whether you take her to see uh her dad or not emir yeah yeah emperor emir mm-hmm. i think so as well uh, because otherwise he thinks she's still lost. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's... I don't know, it, it, it's weird just trying to wrap my head around all of this game. Uh, because, you know, I, I enjoyed the combat. When the game came out, it, it seemed like there were some people that kind of felt like the, the game was okay, and it was enough to ignore the combat, but I actually really quite liked it. Um, mm-hmm. 
it's on death march i will i legitimately think it's like pretty good it's below right. that where it gets um because you have to use all your potions you have to use bombs you have to sure. utilize everything whereas sure, sure. by the time you're not even halfway through the game i feel like on normal it's just kind of mash and exit people sure it's flashy looking though it feels good it is <laughs> it's pretty flashy looking yeah mm-hmm. um it it does one of the things that I like in a game where it gives you two different types of evasive rolls where yeah. you have kind of a short jump away and then a full actual like somersault. Um, the one thing as as far as combat goes that I wasn't a huge fan of was the way that it changed um, basically the, the type of inventory that you were able to hold at one time. In the second game, which I guess just because I played it so much, I liked the fact that I could have, like, five different types of grenades. And yeah. so when you bring up your, your radial menu, you've got your magic abilities at the top uh, of the circle, and then you have your bombs at the bottom. And you could have other things, but I always went with bombs, <clears throat> because one of the weird things uh, in The Witcher 2 on the, like, alchemy tree... I think it's like one of the like a second ability that you can get uh, doubles your grenade impact. Uh, so you can literally put just like two points into that and then just start making grenades and throw grenades at people and it becomes way, way easier. Uh, it, I, I just enjoyed that. But in the uh, in the Witcher 3, you can only have like two grenades at a time and then you have, you know, like throwing knives and you have your crossbow and you have you know a couple of other things but like the crossbow except for a couple of key instances of like shooting something as it's flying towards you to knock it out of the sky yeah. like it doesn't do enough damage it always <laughs> for the say, entire game does like 20 damage even with the uh, the like superpowers you can get for it in the expansions and stuff it's worthless outside yes. of that fight with the griffin i often wonder why why it's even in the game it's just a weird uh, thing. yeah there's no, also so, a lot of going in and out of menus and like managing yeah. your alchemical ingredients uh-huh. and your recipes and stuff. And on the consoles in particular, um, those menus start to hitch and lag the more <laughs> the more mm. and more stuff you get into it until eventually right. it's like there's like a five second hitch every single time you go in and out of a menu. I'm sure that's better with an SSD on a computer, but uh, pretty pretty notable flaw there. Yeah. Um but yeah, so I, I honestly, I really kind of wish that the game allowed you to customize, especially your your radial menu, mm-hmm. more because the way that the interface is made, it's it's like okay, you can use swords, obviously, and you can use magic. Like that's what you're gonna use. That's it. That's <laughs> that's and what's that's especially your main... weird about this is. The games received some pretty massive updates. Like every, mm-hmm. I've played this game uh, three times, and every time I've gone back to it, the user interface has been completely different. Completely different every single time. Um, that includes the radio menu and the UI and even your inventory. Um, yeah. the, the original launch of the game didn't even have item boxes for you to store your loot. Um, so it is interesting. The last time I played it, the, uh, the radial menu was much better, but it's still limited in what you can do. Yeah, I really just wish that uh, that you were allowed to customize that specifically with the tools that you wanted to use. Because if you wanted to go the alchemical route, using more grenades is like a big part of that. Because mm-hmm. that's one of the things that you make. And also having more than just you know two potions on your D-pad to be able to drink at one time. 
like being able to to do all that. I mean, sure, you can pause the game and go and and drink or re-equip anything at pretty much any time, but I don't know that that's a lot to ask for somebody that wants to play that way when you have a radio menu for somebody that you know otherwise just wants to play with swords and magic, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Trying to think of, I feel like that interface is probably the biggest complaint that I have against the game. I never got big into Gwent. Uh, that's probably the only side quest that I did not see through to fruition. I played the the one Gwent match that you can do in in White Orchard, and I was like, oh, I can do this. That's cool. And then I play the first one that's not a <laughs> tutorial, and I was like, oh god, nope. <laughs> I loved it at the time. It reminded me of like collecting cards in like Final Fantasy eight or nine. It's got the. It's like the uh, the game part is like pretty fun, I'd say, and I love the music. But it's, it's really just like the collectible part of it that kept me uh, playing that throughout. Speaking of, have you played Thronebreaker? No, I haven't. But You're really the missing fact out. That it's, like missing it's out big time. It's just so like good. that. Yeah. Can I just skip Gwent? Can I not play Gwent? I haven't looked, but I, I'll, I'll say it's very different. It's not the okay. same thing it is in 3. It's got like a puzzle element to it. Like mm. You'd probably enjoy it. It's a puzzle game, really. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, you're really missing out in terms of story, though, especially if you've read the books. Yeah, I, I, I want to. Like, I know that like uh, Queen Maeve and stuff is in it, mm. and... Um... It's Witcher. Like, I, I want to play it. I've got it. And I have it installed. I just can't bring myself to open it because I'm scared. <laughs> I hate card games, man. Or any sort of strategy, anything, honestly. I, it, it unnerves me and I get, I get like, I don't know, hives or something. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely still like a, a strategy-based kind of game. But uh, yeah. you should muscle through it. it. It's got some big payoffs for people that are fans of the universe, so. Okay. Um, we haven't even talked about the, <laughs> the DLC, which is nope, ridiculous. Nope. Um, the uh, game's yeah. just so big, but uh, the expansions, you know, are just as good and in many mm-hmm. ways even better than the base mm-hmm. game. I think Hearts of Stone is such a good story. It's like this postmodern uh, Faustian morality tale. <laughs> That's right. just uh, a joy to witness. Has an excellent villain. Yes. Uh, Gontaro Dim is yeah. fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. Heart, Heart of Stone is is really interesting, uh, just because it it I don't know. It does something that I kind of wish more games did. It it's weird because I feel like if more games did this, and I don't remember anybody getting mad in this way about it, but you know, there, there's no new area per se in the game. Yeah, basically just like the top an old one. Mm-hmm. Right, the the top right corner of the map which was by and large empty in the main game now has like a new town there. Um So I feel like if more games did that and just had like these empty spots and it's like, "Oh, stuff is coming to this later on," people would get mad. I don't think anybody got mad with The Witcher 3 doing that. Uh because it's one of those, I don't know. I feel like of developers, CD Project Red is probably one of the few like trusted developers like i i trust that they're actually you know wanting to make a good game for me rather than just wanting to make money they obviously want to make money because you know they they are uh but <laughs> man hearts of stone came out and it, it cost it cost ten dollars mm-hmm. and, and it's like 15 or 20 hours long yeah and then uh blood and wine came out and i think it was 15 it was just a little bit more maybe it was 20 uh, 
I think it was 20, yeah. But it's like 40 to 50 hours long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Har- Hearthstone, I mean, yeah, Har- that that is really great. It has a fantastic villain. And I overall really enjoyed it. Uh, Shawnee comes back, who, if you've read the books, you know, she appears like once there. But she's a big part of The Witcher 1. So seeing her back was a treat. And yeah. and then cool boss fights too. Some stuff that's like legitimately pretty challenging. Some stuff that feels like very Souls esque almost is in there, uh, <laughs> because everybody loves comparisons to Dark Souls. Right, of course. Um, of course. And then uh, just the the final kind of boss encounter, which is is more of a puzzle than anything mm-hmm. else with um, with the Man of Glass, uh, is just really fun. You know, it, it's not. It's not your typical kind of boss battle that you have um, in a Witcher game. It's also full of these moments, that particular expansion, where it's just asking you these like existential questions just just to ask them. Because um, the story of Faust, even if you're not familiar with it, you don't know exactly. You're probably familiar with this story and like a deal with the devil. Like it's got that kind of framing. But by putting the player into the middle of that and letting them make choices and stuff. You've suddenly changed the whole con, the whole concept. You've made it this whole. You've made it a postmodern narrative now because the player gets to decide uh, whether there, there's things like an afterlife. You get to make the decisions like how important is the afterlife? What is morality? You get to just ask these questions, and save for one occasion, not for any particular gain, not because the game is trying to push the narrative forward. It's just asking asking the questions to probe your mind, and you know really get you into the vibe of what the expansion is going for. I, I did not like it as much as Blood and Wine, though. Um, Blood and Wine, in some ways, it's, it's kind of like Lair of the Shadow Broker for mm-hmm. Mass Effect. Like, it is the best kind of, like, distilled version of what this game is. Like, if, if I could just make somebody play one piece of it... Um, of of any of the Witcher things, I would make somebody play Blood and Wine. Uh, yeah, it's also it also manages to be like the uh, the Citadel for Mass Effect for the Witcher yeah. franchise too. <laughs> yeah. Though it gets to be both because it's uh, like I said, it's probably the most it's the most Witcher esque small uh, portion of a game. Small, it's still full, forty hours long. It's full game size. Right. Um, yeah, I mean it, it's bigger than the Witcher two. It's <laughs> yeah, but you know, like you said, it is like the uh the most pristine image of like the witcher as a game but at the same time it's also uh the most charming uh befitting most ideal send off for these characters possible and uh, you you only get that if you're if you're more invested sure but even in a lot of ways even if you're just invested in the characters from the game that you played uh mm-hmm. i think there's still a lot that is satisfying there because you know as a character um Geralt goes back to Toussaint at the behest of um, Henrietta, the mm. queen of, of Toussaint, or the duchess, not the queen. Yeah. Um, and while he's there, he he comes into possession of a winery. And depending on who you romanced in the main game and, you know, what, like whether or not Siri went off to continue witchering or if she became the empress of uh, Nilfgaard, um, 
you know, what some character will like come and visit you and stay with you at the winery, which I feel sorry for the person that just gets dandelion. In the <laughs> oh, can, can dandelion right. be the person that stays with you? That's uh, yeah. So if you if you either don't romance, so if you romance Jennifer, then it's Jennifer. If you romance Triss, then it's Triss. If you don't romance either one, or you try to romance both, then it's neither. Um, and then if Siri continues to do her witchering, then she comes to visit you. But if she dies or becomes the empress, then you're left with just dandelion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's good. He does free you from jail, though. I guess. Yeah, yeah. But uh, he's he's a good friend. But he's yeah. kind of annoying. I actually, of of all the things from the show, uh, the. Honestly, the only thing that I like the show's version of more than anything else, I really like their dandelion. And I refuse to call him Jaskier. He's yeah. dandelion. I mean, he's he's, he's a really, really good character in the books. And I feel mm-hmm. like the short stories in particular, Sword of Destiny is my favorite book out of all of them. Mm. Um, yeah, he, he's really good in the show. It's the one thing, because he's such an important char- character. He's like Geralt's best friend. The games never really got him right. Um, two is probably the closest, um, but it's still pretty far off. Yeah. Um, yeah, he, he's a little too insincere in the, the way that he, like, he always kind of comes across as if he's trying to act like a famous bard rather than actually be one. Maybe. I I don't know. It's, there's no point where he's, he's, well, one, I think part of the problems with the games is that he never has a song that is catchy enough that you as a player <laughs> want to sing it. And I think 90% of Dandelion's success in the show is toss a coin to your Witcher. Um, right. <laughs> because it, it kind of makes you believe that he's uh, he's actually a bard. Right, so like um, Priscilla gets the big song performance, the right. big memorable performance in Witcher 3. And that song that she sings is supposed to be one that Dandelion wrote even, I think. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, but he's but, just kind of relegated to like a side quest giver in The Witcher 3. And, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's a somewhat charming one, but it never really... You never get the sense of their friendship like you do from the books or even the TV show. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, back, back to Blood and Wine. Um, so, you you know, you get this winery and... Then you're you get again you get to meet uh, Regis who is a, a vampire and he's just a fantastic character. Uh, he, I mean he's he's your main side character kind of for the in, entirety of that expansion, mm-hmm. and he is just fantastic. Uh, both at, like I don't even I don't know how well he correlates to his book's counterpart because from when I, you know I originally played them around the same time and read it around the same time but in my brain like when I think of Regis I think of the game not the book and I I honestly can't even really think uh besides the fact that he's just you know this polite uh older gentleman type character um it I don't know they they might work really well together they might seem like the main character or or not I I honestly can't hold the two different things in in my head (laughs) I feel Um, like it works pretty well but like you I've only gone uh, in reverse, I've only seen them in the games and then read the books, and yeah. so I, I, I read it that way, and it yeah. feels fine. I don't notice yeah. anything off key or anything. So, 
But uh, but yeah, you, you just you get to do some good witchering contracts. The the scenic, the 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 views that you get in that game. I mean, everything just feels like it's out of a a Thomas Kincaid painting, or mm. like it, even more so when you go into like the weird um, fairy tale universe to yeah. save the Duchess's sister. Um, which that's probably the end of that quest is the weirdest most like oh we haven't had a sex scene in a while like <laughs> that it did it was pretty juvenile but i mean it, it's the witcher it's oh, gonna be but, in there um, but i, I don't know you I know feel what's like... wild correct me if i'm wrong i don't think you have to go into the fairy tale right like doesn't blood and wine have like big witcher 2-esque diverging paths <laughs> Uh, I know that there are a lot of paths. Because um, you can also go visit the, the elder vampire in like um, a cave. You have to like take a boat there. Yeah, that sounds right. I, I only played through it once, so it's it's hard to. Uh, and I, to I could say, be completely but, wrong, but I think yeah. I think it's like either you do like the uh, the elder vampire quest with Regis, or you. Uh, Go into the fairy tale world and you save what is her name, Sylvana? Uh, I think so. Oh, god, now I'm forgetting. There's, I, I do remember actually one of the few times I looked up a uh, I looked up a guide as I was playing it because I wanted to, to get the best ending. Uh, yeah, it, it's weird. There, there are a lot of endings, like the I think both characters can die, mm-hmm. uh, each of them independently can die both of them can stay alive they can stay alive and mad at each other not reconcile their relationship they can also reconcile their relationship there's there's a bunch of different uh options for the end and that was like as i was getting closer to it and kind of like seeing the options uh laid out i was like yeah there's like i I need to know what to do here (laughs) which in a way is impressive, but also makes it kind of disappointing. The um, the sort of the sort of options that are missing there, like uh, the big bad guy vampire. His name's uh, Detlef. Yeah, Detlef. Um, it always felt like there should be some kind of way to like talk him down at the end of that game. Mm-hmm. And I guess thematically, it's going for the idea that you can't like. There's just some things you can't talk people out of. You can't like change the nature of a person. Um, but it it doesn't feel right. It doesn't come across the right way in that last scenario. There's nothing you can do to get out of that boss fight, which is a really cool boss fight. But it is. Uh, that's that's one of the the things where like, especially if you're playing on you know normal. Um, the the last boss fight with, um, the the king of the wild hunt is just mm. not challenging yeah. at all. And when I went up against Detlef at the end of the game, I was like, oh. Wow, this is hard. I I had to play it several several times, and it's it's multi stage, and it's I don't even want to think about doing that boss battle on Death March. <laughs> you just chug like seven potions. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah, um, that was my strategy at least. Mm. But uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, the the ending the ending scenario for Blood and Wine feels a little bit rushed and i think that's largely forgivable because it's an expansion it's a 40 it's a 20 dollar 40 hour expansion so no one's going to really complain if like there's some leaps in time or leaps in logic in the narrative um the witcher the main game had a pretty similar 
pacing issues towards the end, I feel like, too, though. Um, so it's kind of strange to see a repeat of that. Um, like, the jump in time where uh, uh, Henrietta is like, okay, Witcher, it's like, you bring me some evidence right now. You go hunt down that vampire. And then the game's just, like, a week later. And Geralt and Reed just walk up and like, oh, we couldn't find him. <laughs> like, <laughs> what happened? It's kind of strange. It felt like something should be there. Um, sure. But like I said, it's easier to uh, it's easier to just accept when it's something that's part of an expansion like that. So. Right, and it, it it's it's also just kind of weird though because it's it's an expansion. Theoretically, everything is on CD Projekt Red's timetable. Mm. If they wanted to include more stuff or had to cut stuff out to meet the original date, why didn't they just push back? It, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you you would think it is it is very strange, but I guess. It wouldn't shock me too much, but by the time they came to the final hours of that, um, they were ready to move on <laughs> and just, you know, get to cracking on Cyberpunk. I guess they've been with The Witcher for such a long time. Oh, um, sure. And it must be it must be strange uh, to be this company where like the this IP that is owned by another very successful person is all that your studio is defined by. Mm-hmm. And whether Cyberpunk will be good. You know, who knows? I think it will be. Um, I have this gut feeling that it's not going to hit like The Witcher 3 did, which is uh, probably my game of the generation, I'd say. It has some competition, but very little. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's anything that, that comes close to The Witcher 3 for me. Um, I mean, in a sense, like, there, there's part of me that actually has more love for The Witcher 2. Um mm. But I think a lot of that has to do with just like even when that game came out, there were a lot of people that didn't like it, and it was not necessarily a popular thing. But th- there were a lot of people that just I don't know. I, g- I guess it was kind of popular to kind of hate on the game, um, and so I was very defensive of The Witcher Two, and. I played it a lot. And so it just, I don't know. It has this, it's, it's like the first mass effect. I mean, it's like, yeah, like mass effect two is a better game than mass effect one, but I like mass effect one more. Yeah. I still Um, prefer the first game. Um, It has that, you know, place in my heart that, uh, the Witcher two has over, over the Witcher three. But it's, if I were to make a, a list, like, I don't think I could put two over three because three is just clearly in pretty much every way, a better game. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, yeah, it's, it's just, it's so good. And we've been talking about it for an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like we barely even touched on anything too. It's, it's Yeah, a... no, we've just been talking around things and just praising the game. Uh, we mentioned like, I mentioned like one thing that I didn't like and that that's pretty much it. Um, yeah. it's, but I mean, I don't know. I think part of it has to do with just how, not, not only how big the game is, like in terms of. Uh, gameplay scope or plot line because as we've already discussed if you want to do everything it's like 150 hours um, but there's also like the game is just big because of how much it draws from and how many kind of footholds that it has everywhere I mean if you look at when the the first audiobook for The Last Wish uh, when it came out in 2007 or 2008 uh, the guy that does the voice for that is a guy named Peter Kenny, and he does a very different voice for Geralt than Doug Cockle does for Geralt in the games. Uh, but if you look at the, you know, Netflix Witcher series, 
Oh, Henry Cavill. He's doing his best Doug Cockle impression. Yes. <laughs> he's just yes, trying he his is. absolute hardest. And, like, that, the music of it is, like, you're really trying to be the Witcher 3 soundtrack right now. Like, mm-hmm. really hard. It's <laughs> yeah. So, like, beyond just, like, what the game is in and of itself, like, the way that it has influenced other things, including its own TV show and games like Assassin's Creed Odyssey, like, it's just so big like i don't we can't talk about everything i mean we we we, um i mentioned joseph anderson's four hour long witcher one video uh and as of right now as of this recording his other witcher videos are not out yet but they were growing like exponentially in size i think the witcher two video is five or six hours long and the Witcher 3 video may be like eight hours long. Yeah, that's, that's what a he was video saying, on yeah. YouTube of a dude talking about a video game. <laughs> and I'm very excited to watch them. That's the scariest part. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um. Um. <sighs> yeah, like you said, it's, it's an incredibly good game. It's incredibly well made. It's just very gripping. It's extremely long. Um,. It it's just got so much going for it, and it's also influential. Like I think you can already see that in some games that take elements from it, but don't quite don't quite understand what it's what it's got there. Um, I think Horizon Zero Dawn is one of them. I think that uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey is like pretty blatant. Um, so you can already see like the uh, the saplings of what, of what The Witcher Three is planted, but I don't think mm-hmm. you'll see the uh, the real the real um, payoffs for what The Witcher Three is uh, done for the industry until a few years from now. Even you know, games take a long time to develop, especially big RPGs. But I think its approach to writing uh, and characters and the way side quests are presented to the player is something that'll be felt for a long time to come. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean it's. In some ways, it it might be like the Baldur's Gate of the the twenty tens. Mm-hmm. Like if you look back on on that and how much influence it had on on games, you know, um, for you know even today, but especially for the next ten years after that game came out, um, I think we are in the the early stages of of The Witcher Three's influence. And I, I'm glad it exists. Glad it's here. It's good. People should play it. Yeah. <laughs> Might sink back into it for another 150 hours or so. Yeah, yeah. No, I've I've got a review to finish that I really need to to play after we get done recording. But I, the, I'm like, just staring at Geo the GOG launcher on my computer right now. It's like, should I? <laughs> I probably should, shouldn't I? I t- <laughs> Oh, it's it's a good game. Well, Brandon, do you have any other... Th- I mean, there's like a thousand other thoughts that we could have about this game. Uh, but is there anything that you actually like really want to say right now about it? Because <laughs> I, I don't know where to go from yeah. here. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I've said all I can without just stretching this out uh... for twice it's already... <laughs> twice it's runtime already. Um, I just want as many people to play it as possible. Um, I wish people that even feel turned off with it if they could just you know hang on to some of those hints like maybe maybe consider turning that map off or like ignoring those question marks you know 
try, yeah. try to try to try to get into it because it's there's something really special there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that does it for this discussion about all things Witcher, really. I mean, we, we <laughs> it took us half an hour to even to get to the game. So, um, Brandon, thank you for sitting down with me and chatting about uh, one of our favorite games from the past 10 years. And we'll be back in just a little bit uh, to talk about more of those favorite games. Well, that does it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can find more information about the games we discussed below if you're listening on YouTube or in the show notes for this episode on DarkStation.com. There you can also find the DarkCast Interviews podcast as well as other video game reviews, previews, and features. Be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at DarkStation underscore com, find us on Facebook, check us out on YouTube, and email us at podcast at DarkStation.com. For Garland Pan and Brandon Boyd, I'm Jonathan Miley. Thanks again, and until next time, be safe out there.